But this morning, open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we finished chapter 1, and now we're going to move into chapter 2. We'll start at verse 1. Paul the Apostle, imprisoned in the city of Rome. Rome, of course, at this time is the capital of the powerful, mighty Roman Empire. And the apostles waiting to go on trial before the leader of that empire, Caesar Nero. He is shackled to a Roman guard. And while he is under house arrest, he grabs a scroll and a pen. And he begins to write a letter to this church that is in Philippi, located in Macedonia, northern Greece, that he established on his second missionary journey about 10 years prior to him writing this letter. Father, as we come this morning and and read these words, they are inspired. And Lord, they're for us. As Paul's desire was that their conduct be worthy of the gospel. That should be our desire and have the mind of Christ. How we can have unity through humility. And Lord, I pray that these things that we uh, read, these four verses that they're very impactful, that we would be attentive, that our hearts would be, Lord, we want these things worked out in our lives, that we want fruit to abound, and Lord, work this in us and through us. I pray that we would be seated and in our chairs and, and attentive, Lord. We get a few minutes in your word this morning. How precious it is that we get to do this and come together as a church and come to the communion table. So help us to remember to turn our ringers off our phones, be settled in our seats, and Lord, be attentive to the things that you want to show us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And as we have seen in this letter to the Christians at Philippi, Paul has stated already that he's thankful for them. He prayed for all of them and was joyous concerning them. And Paul's rejoicing and being grateful for them was because of the relationship that he had with them was very special there at the church of Philippi. He said in the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 that how greatly I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray for you that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and discernment that you may prove the, the things that are excellent. In other words, building each other up, encouraging each other in the things of the Lord. And he also would say that may you be found without offense and, and being uh, sincere until the day of Christ. And also that you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And the apostle, as he's addressing the church at Philippi, the Christians there, they would be concerned for him. He says, I want you to know that my chains are in Christ, and I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar Nero, but of Christ who has me here for the furtherance of the gospel. He wasn't sure what was going to happen to him, whether he would be released or whether he would be sentenced to death. And in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. And that is my prayer for all of us, that in our hearts that we would say, for for me to live is Christ, that you are the priority, you're the passion of my life. I want to live for you. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to live after the world. I want to live for you, Lord, and to die is gain. And, of course, the Christian is the only one 
Who can say that? Who can say for me to die is gain? Because we are citizens of heaven, he's going to write. And we know that when we close our eyes and take our last breath, that we will go home to be with the Lord. It is a gain for us as we pass through this life and go on to be with him. So more than anything, Paul, his desire is that Christ would be magnified in whatever situation that he was in. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, as we saw last week, there is this transition. He said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. I'll read it to you again. So that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of your affairs, that you may stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We know that, as he says, may your conduct be worthy of the gospel. May you move forward in in being of one accord, striving together for the faith of the gospel, of one mind, that he's going to now in chapter 2 begin to tell us how we can do that, how the church of Philippi can do that, because there was division that was going on. There was a conflict that was going on. He's going to name two individuals in chapter 4 that were the source of the conflict. And so as we move into chapter 2, this is how your conduct can be worthy of the gospel, uh, how you can stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any consolation in Christ in any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So Paul beginning to write concerning the main purpose that he's writing this letter to them. And as we read that word, therefore, in verse 1, you recall that whenever we see that word, therefore, the writer is connecting the previous thought to what he's about to say. And of course, as I just mentioned to you, that he says, let your conduct be worthy of Christ. Strive to have one spirit, one mind. And now chapter 2, he tells them how that can be achieved. And as we travel through these verses here, through this chapter, which is very important for us, to consider and take our time and, and, and really uh, see what the Lord is telling us. The apostle t- talking about how to have harmony, unity, and it will come through humility. And one important point that we need to understand right away as we begin to look at these, these verses and uh, as we read this, that this is not Paul's idea. This is not his opinion on how we can have unity. But he's going to point out that this is the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. And here Paul is revealing the heart and the mind of the Lord. When Jesus, right before he entered into the garden where he would be arrested and then the next day crucified, he would stop. And in John chapter 17, he was praying for all believers. He was praying for us, for future believers. And as he prayed, he said that we would be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Jesus was praying for us that there be unity amongst believers based on love and obedience to God in his word. And Paul is now calling for that spiritual harmony and unity. Now, I think that we need to understand what we mean by unity. 
Unity does not mean that we will all think exactly alike. That's uniformity. I mention that because many Christians can have the mindset of if everybody thinks alike, then there will be unity. And usually it is if you think exactly like I do, then we will have unity. You have the same ideas, the same opinions, the same personality. Now, the apostle in these verses tells us how we can be like-minded, but we will not be thinking exactly alike. So we will discuss how it is that we can be like-minded, have unity. So as I hear of your affairs, the apostle writes in chapter 1, that there is some division going on in the church, a dispute You are to stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Therefore, understand if, and he lists four different qualities that you can note here that are true for you and for me in verses 1 and 2, that that apply to us individually. It applies to our families. It applies to us as a church family, for us here at Calvary Chapel corporately. That word if can be translated since. If or since. There is consolation. That is comfort. There is encouragement in Christ. And of course there is. It's a reality. There is consolation. There is encouragement in Christ. After Paul's third missionary journey, after he was run out of Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, he was there for three years. We know that from Acts chapter 20. And the whole city was given over to the gospel. And the silversmiths would rise up and they would riot against Paul. And he was driven out of the city. And he would write his second letter to the Corinthians after that. And he says, you know that when we came out of Asia, that we were pressed beyond measure. We were despaired even of life. It was so difficult what we were going through. And I know that there are some, many, that have passed through the services. Maybe you're here this morning. And that you're going through a difficult time. You're just pressed beyond measure. The problems, the difficulties, the loss, the the pain that you're going through. Maybe the circumstances that you face. And Paul writes that we have a God who's the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all of our tribulations. And for us the sufferings of Christ abound in us. So our consolation also abounds through Christ. He said there is consolation, there is comfort that comes from the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, God has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. I'm so thankful for the comfort of the Lord, the consolation, the encouragement of the Lord that comes through his spirit working in my heart and speaking that still small voice to my heart. In the times that are hard and wondering and, and those times where I'm down. I love the comfort of his word that is given to me. And I can read his word and read the Psalms, for example. I love going to the Psalms when I'm feeling really down or discouraged or when I'm going through difficulty. And read the words of the psalmist who would trust in the Lord and, and just cry out to the Lord. We find comfort in all that. When I read of Jesus and his desire for us to come to him, as Peter writes, that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. The comfort of his love and the comfort to know that he wants to continue to use me. He wants to continue to just work through me. Being confident that he's going to finish that work that he's begun in me. So we have this as 
we have his comfort. And then second of all, as listed here, we have the comfort of his love. We as believers are comforted by God's love. Comforted by knowing that God loves me and he loves you. And he will always love you. And he proved his love by going to the cross. And he went for you. He went for me. And I always say that if you ever doubt the love of God, look to the cross of Calvary. And Jesus went to that cross because you and I were in a hopeless state. We could not save ourselves. And Jesus, because of his love for you and me, he went to that cross. And his love is for us, available to receive. And in this world, you may not feel very loved. You may not feel valued or worthy or wanted. But I know that his love for me and for you is unchanging. It is infinite. It is perfect. And I can trust what his word declares. He proved his love for me that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I can rest in his love. So if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, which there is, since there's fellowship in the, of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts, the Holy Spirit is the one that will bring and work harmony and unity within the body of Christ and fellowship with one another. I was out of town this week, and, and I was just talking with Sue how much you know, it means to, to me and my family to have fellowship with you guys. The fellowship of believers uh, and what a precious, precious thing that we have. And I hope it's a tremendous blessing for you as well. And as you go through the scriptures, you see the, the importance, the priority of us having fellowship with the Lord, but also having fellowship with one another, which is important as well. So I pray that we never take that for granted, that we would be thankful for each other, even as Paul was thankful for the fellowship that he had with the believers here. So as we, we go through this here, knowing that, and then fourthly, that as we read, that if any affection and mercy, that that word affection takes on the meaning of tender affection, so any comfort of love, uh, any consolation in Christ, number one, any comfort of love, number two, fellowship with the Spirit, and then fourthly, any affection and mercy, uh, that word affection, compassion, tender affection. I've been in my devotions reading through Matthew's gospel, and that word compassion comes out. I think Matthew uses that word more than any of the other gospel writers. And you read chapter 9 that Jesus, he looked out on the multitudes and he saw them as sheep that were scattered without a shepherd. He had compassion on the multitude. I read about how the leper would come to Jesus and, and cry out, if you're willing, cleanse me. And Jesus reached out with those hands and touched them and said, I am willing. It tells us that he had compassion on that man. That man that was full of leprosy is what Dr. Luke, who's a physician, would say. He was full of leprosy, all eaten up. He comes and he says, Lord, if you're willing. And I know that perhaps there, maybe there's even somebody that you hear at this service that you feel all eaten up inside. The world has taken a toll. Sin has taken a toll. And you wonder if you can approach the Lord. And he says, come to me. And he desires as you repent and as you turn to him and call out to him, he desires to touch you, bring healing to you, to restore you, to forgive you, because he has compassion for you.
And then mercy is being spoken of here. And the Lord is merciful to us. We have received his mercy. The scripture tells us that his mercies are new every morning. And so since these four qualities are true in the life of believer, Paul goes on to say, let's read again in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I think that's interesting that Paul here says, fulfill my joy, since the apostle has already expressed his joy. But his desire is that his joy may be full or complete. Or I will rejoice even more if these things are being worked out in the life of the church. It would bring great joy to Paul. Number one, being like-minded, he writes. What does it mean to be like-minded? Again, as I mentioned, it does not mean that we will think exactly alike uh, on every issue. So what does it mean to be like-minded? It does have the meaning of to think the same. And here is the key, and here is the difference. I can ask you your opinion on a certain topic. The hot topic might be today climate change. You know, what's your opinion on that? I think we in this room would have different opinions on it. Or on politics. I can ask your opinion on politics or the leadership. And, and it can start a discussion, a heated discussion at times. They say, you know, when your fam, family gathers, two things that will start a fight quicker than anything is when you talk about politics and religion. So those two things. So we can talk about different subjects. Even in the, in the church, you can talk about worship. You can talk about different things. And there may be different opinions and thoughts on it um, that may be in this room. But if I was to ask you about the subject of unity and harmony in the body of Christ, we should be like-minded. And we can be like-minded. How? Because we know what the mind of Christ is and that subject of unity. That the Lord desires it. And we should desire it. He tells us how we can have unity in the church. So we agree with that. We take heed to that. It isn't that some of us say, well, you know, uh, we don't really need harmony. If you don't think exactly like I do, and, and I'm going to assert myself, and you better do what I want to be done, whatever the case may be, you start being selfish or conceited or prideful, that's not going to bring unity. But we all should say, listen, as we read this, since we have his comfort, since we have his love, since we have fellowship with one another, since we have his compassion and his mercy that has been given to us, we need to extend that compassion and mercy to others. We should be in agreement with this and that the Lord wants us to be like-minded. There's truth that we do stand on. We stand on the gospel and the truth of God's word. But as the apostle would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We are to have the mind of Christ. So this is important to the Lord. And that's why Paul's writing on this. We can be like-minded as we read and study God's word and the Holy Spirit then opens up the things of God. We know the mind of God who reveals these things to us and we have the mind of Christ. Uh, we have unity by being like-minded. So we have unity by being like-minded. Second of all, having the same love, which means a constant state of loving one another. We are recipients of God's love since we have the comfort of his love. And he does love you. And he will always love you. 
His love is perfect. And he will never stop loving you. And since we have that, then we are to love each other. One of the last things that he spoke to his disciples is that they will know that you're my disciples for your love for one another. And having the same love means that you will have the love of God, agape love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Desiring to please God with our lives. Now remember that in chapter 1, his prayer is that your love may abound more and more in, in all knowledge and discernment is what he writes. So how will you have unity, you church of Philippi, that will give me more joy as I'm in this prison cell? And how can we have unity here at Calvary Chapel in the day in which we live? Number one, be like-minded. Number two, have the same love for one another. Then thirdly, he says, be of one accord. What does that mean? It means having people that are striving in the things of Christ in harmony. We should be striving together in the things of the Lord, in the gospel. It's like the worship team that's up here, the wonderful worship that we had this morning. They're playing in harmony, aren't they? They're playing together. Luke's not playing one song and then the singers and the others Magicians, or magicians, musicians <laughs> are, are playing another song. They're playing in harmony. They're in tune with one another is what they are. And we are called to be in harmony with each other. And the one who keeps us tuned up and playing together is God himself. And then in verse 2, fourthly, we are to be of one mind, to be of one mind in Christ. And as we do, we will have unity and we will continue to have that unity that the Lord wants to work in our lives. And, and how is it that we continue to have that unity? We once again read in verses 3 and 4. And this is really important. I think that these two verses that we're going to read that a lot of problems would not exist with relationship with others and in families and in church if we would take heed to verses 3 and 4. Let's read it. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself, and let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Two of the great enemies of unity is selfish ambition or conceit. Now, we did read last week in chapter 1 that Paul talked about those who were motivated in giving the gospel, in preaching, in ministering out of envy, out of strife, out of selfish ambition. Uh, it's adding to my chains. And there's nothing wrong with having ambition, wanting to do the very best for the Lord, but selfish ambition will bring a problem to your spiritual life and to others who are linked to you. Selfish ambition, envy, strife, conceit are the enemy to any local church, any body of believers, any family. An individual elevates their own selfish desires and elevate themselves above the things of God. I'm going to dig in my heels. I'm going to push and demand my selfish ambitions and putting in jeopardy the health and harmony of a body of believers, of a family even. And perhaps some of you have experienced that in your family. Because this is what I want mentality is going on. And conceit and pride and strife becomes a part of that. And it ought not to be. James, when he was writing his epistle, chapter 3, I'm going to read it to you. And it's, it's something worth uh, taking note of and remembering in verses 13 through 18. 
Because James gives us some very important guidelines. Uh, Sue and I oftentimes, when we talk with people or have a discussion with others or we hear even teachings um, of those who have strong opinions about certain things in ministry or you know, whatever the case may be, we always run it through this grid here. It's worldly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And James gives us some very important guidelines in that. And in James chapter 3, I'm going to read it to you in verse 13. You might want to mark it, but, and, and remember this, that who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So there's meekness. Meekness is having strength, but it's strength under control. Jesus, it is said that he was meek. And meekness, listen, does not mean weakness. Sometimes people think that if I'm meek, that's being weak. Um, I, you know, we need to be assertive. We need to, to you know, be aggressive. And even in, in our relationship with others, even in ministry. And, and we need to just move forward and, and even rule over people. Uh, to, to just have that kind of mindset. Meekness is strength under control. The Lord was not weak, but he was meek. And the wisdom of the Lord, he's full of grace and wisdom. And as we see here, that that is heavenly wisdom. It's done in meekness of wisdom. But listen, verse 14. If you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So in other words, worldly wisdom. He said it's earthly, essential, it's even demonic. It's when there's bitterness, when there's envy, self-seeking in somebody's heart, that they lie against the truth. Uh, where there's confusion that we know that is not from above. But listen... But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruits of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom that is from above is pure, it's peaceable, it is full of mercy and good fruits, it's without hypocrisy, it's moving towards blessing. It is moving towards an interest of others. It is peaceable. Paul would write to the Romans in that epistle that he would say to live with peace with other men if possible. We are to be peaceable. We are to desire to have good fruits. We are to have meekness. So these are things that we can read. And one thing that will bring confusion and take away peace in a fellowship and good fruit is envy and self-seeking. And James is reiterating that. You want something. You desire something. You have an agenda. And you put it above everyone else, the local congregation, and self-asserting. And it leads to manipulating. It can lead to intimidating and giving ultimatums because this is what I want. And I want my way no matter what. Here was the desire that Paul said that you be of one mind, to have unity. And, and this is important. 
And it's important for you and for me. And anything that we do when we make decisions in our relationship with others, for me as the pastor of this church, I need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? Because I know pride can be very subtle. I know that I can be self-centered or selfish in, in what I want to do. Is this from you or am I being selfish? Is it my fleshly desire? Is it not of the Spirit? Is it going to bring confusion? Am I being self-seeking? Um, is it you know, going to be, because I'm doing it out of envy? Or whatever the case may be. He says, let nothing. And you know what that word nothing means in the Greek? It means nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And as I mentioned, it has its roots in pride, being prideful. I'm better than other people. I know better than everybody else. I'm going to parade myself before others. And usually it is so that they will get the approval or the applause of men, the ovation of men, rather than the approval of God. Listen, I know that you know this. But pride can be very destructive. It can begin in very subtle ways. And then it grows. And it's destructive to a person's spiritual life and the life of a church. We know that verse in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a terrible sin. Conceit and pride because it's destructive, as I mentioned, and many have fallen because of it. Relationships have been severed and strained because of it. It's what caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. He's the one, Isaiah 14, I want to sit on the throne. I want to be like the Most High. And I've seen it where those in ministry, men of God, who became prideful because they're seeing what the world considers success in their ministry, and they become prideful and they end up falling, and they lost their ministry. And it was very destructive to the church and very messy and very hurtful. I always want to be, I want to be like David who said, Lord, search me and try me and see if there are any wicked ways. He presented his heart to the Lord. Lord, I want to be before you saying, help me to not be prideful. And it would be prideful for me to say that I'll never be prideful. I want to daily and consistently be saying, Lord, is there a seed of pride in my heart? Is there conceit? Am I just thinking highly of myself? What are my motives here? Am I being selfish? Am I trying to elevate myself above others? Am I trying to be seen by others? And my pride is elevated in my selfishness and self-centeredness. And we need to understand that it is so destructive to the work of God that he wants to do in the life of an individual and the life of a congregation and church. So unity does not come by selfish ambition or pride or conceit, the apostle writes, and that's probably what was taking place with these individuals here in the church of Philippi. But let's read again verse 3. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. How is it that we have harmony and unity? It is through humility. It is through humility. It is a loneliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. We hear a lot in our culture about self-esteem. 
And it's interesting that the Bible speaks of dying to self, and the Bible speaks of being othered esteemed. That's what it means to be a Christian. The word esteem means to consider. We are to consider that other person's interest. Esteem means counted to be true. Paul doesn't say we don't look out for our own interests. We do. But it doesn't stop there. We are to consider others in the decisions that I make. And I don't always claim to, to be right in every decision. But I want you to know this, Calvary Chapel. It is my desire to consider the interests, the interests of the sheep here of this church, the fellowship, the people of this fellowship, not any one person above another, or my own interests. But Lord, what is it that will be beneficial and helpful and a blessing to the people of Calvary Chapel? Lord, help me to be a man of humility, of honesty, gratitude, thankfulness. You are accounted to be true. That others are better than, than you. And God's still working in me in that. I'll be honest with you. And sometimes there are those who can read this and have the tendency to whittle this down a little bit. Oh, I know what Paul is saying here. I look for the good qualities in others uh, that may be better than mine, but I'm still superior to them in many other things and in many other ways. That's not what's being said here. But we esteem others better than ourselves. And sometimes when it comes to our family and even in the church, that we are going to make decisions that are not going to make people happy because ultimately we want to please the Lord. Amen? And I believe that we're told in verse 4 here to look out not only for your own interests but for the interests of others. What does that mean? To esteem others better than yourself. It means that we are to be considerate towards others. We are to have a concern for others, to care about others, their needs, that they will do well spiritually, that you are interested in them being built up in the Lord and walking in truth. It's no longer having the mindset, I'll just look out for myself. You look out for your own interests. You're not just a doormat to be walked on, but you also look out for the interests of others. You're not just concentrating on yourself all the time, but you have a concern for others, not for some, but for all in the body of Christ. And a lot of us, we will leave this place and we will go about our jobs in our lives this week. And oftentimes at the end of the day, that we will come home and we will say, man, it's a doggy dog world out there. It really is hard going to work with this person that gets on my case and doesn't like me. I have this guy that's always on my back and people don't care about me. It's such a competitive world out there. Nobody listens to me. Nobody seems to care. People just look out for themselves. They're always critical. Being one that puts me down and, and all of this. Not approving the things that are excellent that we're supposed to be doing. And God forbid that that would be said of this church family here. And I know very well that we're not a perfect church and you don't have a perfect pastor because there is no perfect church and there is no perfect pastor. The church is made up of imperfect people that is and are perfectly loved and forgiven by the Lord. 
And Calvary Chapel here, we're made up of all kinds of different people with different backgrounds. We have different talents and gifts, and we think differently. And yeah, there's going to be someone perhaps in the church that may rub you the wrong way. Because we're living stones that are being put together in this holy habitation, Peter would write. We're living stones being put together. So what's going to be our attitude towards others? Are we going to care for others? Are we going to ask God to help us to care for them? And as a pastor, when people walk into these doors, into this place, it would be wrong for me to think, well, you're not important. You're not important to the Lord. Then I'm not going to minister to you. My prayer here at Calvary Chapel is that we would come together and we would care for one another, have concern for people, that as people come here, they would say, you're different than the world. And what I have to put up with all week long, that here's a group of people, they love God and they love people, and there are people that are interested in me and wanting to build me up. May this never, never be a place where we only care about our own interests and we tear people down, where there's strife and conflict. Who wants that? I don't. And neither do you. And God doesn't want it either. So the commandment has been given to us. This is not a suggestion. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so, Father, we will see next week the perfect example of that is our Lord. Our Lord who came to this world, made himself of no reputation, and taken on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, the creator of the universe, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. We come to the communion table this morning and we remember what Jesus has done for us in allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. That this is truly where, where unity is found in the body of Christ. Right here as we partake of the elements. And communion is for the believer. Maybe you're here. Maybe somebody's here or you're listening and you're not a believer. You haven't come to the gospel that's the power to save you and the power to change you. The gospel that says that Jesus Christ went to a cross and died for your sins and he rose again from the grave to give you a living hope. That you're a sinner in need of forgiveness for you to repent. Repent from your sins. Repent from the direction you're going and turn to Christ. And give your life to him. And call upon him. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That he died for your sins. That he's the son of God. You can do that right now. You come in faith just as you are. And you call on the name of the Lord. And you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. You're, you're my hope. You're my salvation. I'm coming to you as a sinner, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. 
I believe you died on that cross for me. And you rose again. And you've given me a living hope. And now I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. That I may know you and walk with you all the days of my life. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for bringing me into the family of God. And now, as we come to the communion table, we remember so great a salvation that we have, this new covenant that we belong, this new covenant based on the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we hold the communion elements and prepare to take of them together, that we would continue in just a heart of worship right now. In Jesus' name.